Odd Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ben, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman Issue 16, Lost Hearts. I'm joined by two thrilling co-hosts, Ashley. Hello. And Sean. Hey, hey. On each episode, we'll be deconstructing the issue in six separate sections. First will be the rundown, where we let you know who created the issue. And then the catch-up, to be sure you know where we are in the story. Next, we'll do the breakdown. This gives you a synopsis of that week's issue. And then we follow up with the deep dive, when we really get into everything that happened. In our last two sections, we'll discuss our favorite panel and our favorite non-Morpheus character. So there you have it. Six sections to get through, so let's get going. Sean? Over to you for the rundown. All right. So, issue 16, Lost Hearts. It was released April 24th, 1990. And it was written by, no surprises here, Neil Gaiman. Pencils by Mike Dringenberg. Inks by Malcolm Jones III. Colors by Robbie Bush originally. Recolored by Xylenol right. Studios. Lettered by Todd Klein. <laughs> we both that was for you, actually. That way. Yeah, That's I for you, appreciate actually. it. <laughs> Is it just the name? Is it just because it's, it's it, called Xylenol? It sounds like I should be taking something Ugh. to sleep. Yes, that it does. That it does. Hey, the Sandman uh, dreams. Oh, yeah, oh, ooh, exactly. There We're getting there. They knew what they were doing. Assistant <laughs> edited by Tom Payer, and then edited by the inimitable Karen Berger, of course. All right, Ashley, take us to the catch-up. All right, so real quick, just to get us established. Rose did, as we have learned all Vortexes do, and broke down the barriers between all the dreamers and pulled their consciousnesses to herself in a cerebral whirlpool, revealing their deepest desires, conflicts, and fears of all of her friends, and the reader gets to partake in that. Before she completely destroyed all in her wake, though, Morpheus arrived and pulled her into a remote environment for a little chat, releasing her grip on the inner lives of the entire world. Meanwhile, during a conversation between Matthew and Gilbert, Rose's imminent demise is realized, and they left the mortal realm to hopefully find both of them in time. You know, typical day. Ben, take us to the breakdown. (laughs) All right, so we conclude the story here with issue 16, Lost Hearts. So we start in the dreaming. Morpheus and Rose are there. Morpheus is explaining to Rose that he is unfortunately going to have to destroy her because she is a threat, not just to the dreaming, but also to the waking world as well. We have a great moment for Gilbert here as he arrives with Matthew and says he will sacrifice himself so that Rose doesn't have to die. But unfortunately, things don't work that way. And instead, he decides to be Fiddler's Green, asking Rose to come walk in him when she has to stay in the dreaming. Flash over to England's Unity Kincaid. 
has been having some problems, has been struggling. That's why Rose's mother is still there. Well, she enters the Dreaming and she actually lands in Fiddler's Green, but she lands as a young woman. This puzzles Morpheus, but Unity realized that she was actually the Vortex. But because Dream had been captured, she did not get to live out her destiny. And so in this really great scene, she asked Rose to pull out this glass, uh, this heart-shaped glass from inside her, and she gives it to Unity. Unity then dies in the waking world, uh, but is able to live on in the dreams. Morpheus then allows Rose to leave and says, quote, your family has suffered enough and works to go make sure that Jed awakens. We then flash forward six months and Rose has taken the inheritance from Unity Kincaid and she has purchased a house in Seattle. And this is really when we kind of get caught up with a whole bunch of the people that used to be in Hal's house in Florida. They had that traumatic night together. So they all are kind of moving and shaking in, in different directions. And we may get into some of that a little bit later on. But she decides that now that she is uh, done moping after six months and she's going to, quote, hunt down some old friends. We then see Dream go and visit Desire in their gallery. He had figured out that Desire was behind all of this when he had raped Unity Kincaid while she was asleep. She was hoping that what would end up happening is that Dream would spill family blood and all that would entail, which is very ominous and we're not quite sure what that would entail. Dream then warns Desire to never mess with him and reminds them that they are servants of the living, not their masters. Do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden Nintendo cartridge to get it to work? Get the dust out of it. All right, here we go. Yes, let's get it. Now the screen's gray. Oh man. Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Hello? That's mom. Uh, pretend you're asleep. Wait, pause it, pause it, turn off the TV. Do, do you Shh, think she's gone? make a sound. Hmm, I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh well. Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule Podcasters! Join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's legendary series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcasters. So, we arrive at the conclusion. Lots of exciting action took place. It seems like a good place to start is looking at the hearts, the figurative hearts, the literal hearts, the ironic hearts all the different lost hearts that we see in this issue. And Sean, that's where you're going to take us to start with. These are, I'm going to take us in some weird directions here, I think, but uh, just go with me. So <laughs> the title of this issue that connects us back to uh, last week's episode and issue 15, because remember in that book, 
uh, Chantal is dropped, is trapped in a dream of a story that keeps like bringing her round and round in circles. It's like, it was a dark and stormy night. And the skipper said to the mate, mate, tell me a story. And this was the story he told. It was a dark and stormy night. And it goes on and on again. Um, and then Rose does her vortex thing and the dreams kind of start merging and Chantel's dream is merged with Zelda's and she's Zelda is able to kind of break Chantel out of this recurring cycle because Zelda tells her a new story. Um, and the new story goes, in September of the year 1911, a post chaise drew up before the door of Aswerby Hall in the heart of Lincolnshire or Lincolnshire if you're talking about the Chicago sh- suburb. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Which one do you think they were talking about? <laughs> Oh, definitely Chicago suburb, right? No. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> the little boy who jumped out as soon as it had stopped looked around him with the keenest curiosity during the short interval between the ringing of the bell and the opening of the hall door. And then Chantel and Zelda like reconnect in this gorgeous panel that I think was actually, was it you who called that out as your favorite panel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was such a great panel. Um, and, you know, they're kind of embracing and things like that. Uh, and so as I mentioned briefly last week the that line is actually a misquote of the opening line of mr james's short story lost hearts which inspired the title of this issue um and that kind of inspired me to try to figure out why neil might have chosen that story to include in the last issue and then reference again in this one um so i went kind of down the rabbit hole on that one and So for those of you who might be unfamiliar with him, Montague Rhodes James uh, was born in 1862, died 1936. So his life and career overlapped with like most every towering literary figure of the English language from Charles Dickens to Henry James, from T.S. Eliot to Virginia Woolf. And while our Montague might never have had like the psychological insight of a Henry James or the formal daring of a James Joyce, a lot of Jameses, uh, there's one area where Monty excels beyond his peers, and that is ghost stories. Um, So, you know, for anyone putting together like a Mount Rushmore of horror authors, M.R. James would surely be on it somewhere, probably scoffing at whomever was added next to him. Because James wrote his ghost stories to be read aloud on Christmas Eve, as is the tradition, yeah. And he had very particular guidelines for how tales of the supernatural should be written. So, for example, he says, The two ingredients most valuable in the concocting of a ghost story are, to me, the atmosphere and the nicely managed crescendo. Let us then be introduced to the actors in a placid way. Let us see them going about their ordinary business, undisturbed by forebodings, pleased with their surroundings, and into this calm environment, let the ominous thing put out its head, unobtrusively at first, and then more insistently, until it holds the stage. Um, So that was this kind of dramatic approach to stories of the supernatural. Um, He also insisted that a good ghost story should have a modicum of blood shed with deliberation and carefully husbanded. And then of Bram Stoker's Dracula, he said, it is, quote, a book with very good ideas in it, but to be vulgar, the butter is spread far too thick. 
Um, I don't know if you ever read <laughs> Dracula, but you know he, he's not wrong. Overall, yeah, those are great points. <laughs> I do, I do like that description a lot. Yeah, yeah. So James, he was a master of the slowly creeping horror of the comfortable and familiar made gradually strange and frightening through the accumulation of small details. So like a leather bag, a bed sheet, an empty beach. Um, inanimate objects in James's work always contain the threat of suddenly acting with an unseen will. So it's no wonder James was a prime example in... Um, the, the critic, uh, Mark Fisher, he did a, this, he wrote this book on the weird and the eerie and his mm. definition of the eerie was the, the presence of agency where there should be none or the absence of agency where it should exist. So, you know, if you see something acting that should not, where there should be nothing, you know, giving it the ability to act eerie or if you if something acts where there's there it, it, it shouldn't be um, you know also eerie so like imagine you know like you're walking across an empty field on a gray and misty day and you suddenly hear you know a, a distant voices like wail right so there's no nobody there there shouldn't be anybody there and yet you're hearing the sound of somebody there that's the feeling of the eerie and that's something like the feeling of reading MR James um, his characters were often very much like himself. They were bookish academics and antiquarians, uh, usually single, um, drawn into contact with the macabre through some like encounter with an artifact of history. Uh, so there's the journal editor who refuses an article submission on alchemy and like earns the ire of a warlock in um, casting the runes, one of his more famous stories. And then there's the professor who stumbles upon a cursed artifact at a site of medieval ruins in uh, Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. So these are kind of like archetypal M.R. James characters. And I'd be willing to bet that they influenced everyone from like H.P. Lovecraft's Seekers of Forbidden Knowledge to, you know, Stephen King's ever-present like writer protagonists. I'm pretty sure they would have, uh, you know, he, he would have influenced all of them. And as for Neil Gaiman, you know, neither Roderick Burgess nor Richard Maddock would be out of place in a James story. Um, Lost Hearts, however, is a little bit different for James. It's one of his earliest ghost stories. Those first read aloud at a Cambridge Literary Society event in 1893, and it was first published in 1895. So, and he was reportedly not very fond of it, um, although, you know, people really like it, uh, but he, he wasn't crazy about it. And its protagonist, instead of a sort of sober and solitary academic, is a young boy uh, named okay. Stephen, and that's the one arriving at uh, Aswarby Hall in the bit that Zelda recites in The Sandman. So, in the story... Yeah, um, Stephen has been recently orphaned, and he's arriving at the home of an elderly, distant cousin, uh, Mr. Abney, with whom he's been invited to live. So Abney lives this life of isolation, uh, but he welcomes Stephen enthusiastically, and he shows like particular concern for his health and his youth and things like that, like like a little bit too much, you know, but just a tiny bit too much. Um, 
And Stephen is this bright and curious kid, and he spends his days kind of roaming the grounds, exploring. He's learning the history of the place and about his uncle also from um, the cook, Mrs. Bunch, and the butler, Parks. But, of course, things, yeah, things get weird pretty quickly. Uh, For example, Mrs. Bunch, she's kind of explaining uh, Mr. Abney's, what she considers his, like, generous disposition. And she shares that he'd taken in young people before. Uh, There was this young gypsy girl. That's how they phrase it. I know it's not the preferred nomenclature now. It's just in there. Um, And then this little Italian boy, neither of whom had families, and both of whom, according to Mrs. Bunch, disappeared without saying goodbye. And Mrs. Bunch kind of assumes that the girl left with other gypsies, uh, uh-huh. that they just like came in a caravan, took her away, um, because she was like, oh, there was all this, you know, voices heard around the property and, and singing and things like that on the day she disappeared. And the boys disappear and she talks up to, I think she just honestly talk, chalks it up to him being foreign. Like, I think the oh, very yeah. fact of him being a foreigner means he might just run off. She's mm. like, she's like, they're a unruly lot, you know? <laughs> Uh, oh my gosh. I mean, like, it shouldn't be shocked, but every time it still hits yeah. different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, she's, and she, this is just like selling points on uh, Mr. Abney's character. She's just like not particularly concerned that this guy keeps bringing kids to live with him and that they end up like going missing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there are other mysterious events. Like Stephen has this strange dream where he stands in the hall and he looks into this old and unused bathroom and sees a figure wrapped in a sheet lying in the tub with its hands like clasped over its chest. Uh-uh. Yeah. Hmm. So he awakens from his dream and he finds himself, he's actually standing in the hall. No. Oh, and... no. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah. yeah. I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> and furthermore, he doesn't even go back to the sleep yet. He walks over to the bathroom and confirms that it's empty. He's a brave little kid. Braver than me. Yeah. And then there's like these mysterious scratches on his bedroom door and on his nightgown, like 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 torn through his nightclothes. And then he overhears Parks talking about like hearing these disembodied voices in the cellar and... Mrs. Bunch is like, oh, it's just rats. And he's like, oh, yeah, those rats were having a conversation, I guess. And then they see <laughs> Stephen watching. And he's like, oh, I was just kidding, you know. JK, JK, JK. So the things come to a head on a night of some great significance to Mr. Abney, the, the, the cousin, the elderly cousin. is the spring equinox. And the old man invites Stephen to join him in his study at 11 p.m. No, that night. you don't do that. <laughs> But Stephen's really excited. He's, he's excited to have permission to stay up late and like, oh, I have an appointment at 11 p.m., you know. So Stephen's like wandering around excitedly and he passes by the study once and kind of looks in to see Mr. Abney. And Abney's there with his papers and he's got a silver cup filled with red wine and he's got and he's sprinkling incense from a silver box into the brazier, you know, and, and Abney doesn't see him. Stephen returns to his room. He looks out of the window and he starts hearing these strange cries in the distance. <laughs> ben, you're ruining the mood. <laughs> so 
these cries, they're coming closer and closer as he's standing there at the window, looking out into the darkness, and then they suddenly stop. And he notices, standing on a terrace opposite the hall from where he is, two figures, a boy and a girl. And the girl's kind of clasps her hands over her heart and reminds Stephen suddenly of the figure that he saw in his dream that was lying in the tub. And the boy is even creepier. So I'm just going to quote his description of the boy. So he's talking about the boy here. He raised his arms in the air with an appearance of menace and of unappeasable hunger and longing. The moon shone upon his almost transparent hands, and Stephen saw that the nails were fearfully long and that the light shone through them. As he stood with his arms raised thus, he disclosed a terrifying spectacle. On the left side of his chest, there opened a black and gaping rent, and there fell upon Stephen's brain, rather than upon his ear, the impression of one of those hungry and desolate cries that he had heard resounding over the woods of Aswerby all that evening. In another moment, this dreadful pair had moved swiftly and noiselessly over the dry gravel, and he saw them no more. Uh, no. <laughs> you really need to, but when you do your deep dives, you really need to get a flashlight under your chin, because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had not read much M.R. James before, and it's, uh, it's pretty good. I'm going to read more. So, Stephen is terrified, but he's determined to follow through with his appointment. No! So it'll... <laughs> it's, it's Learning about Stephen and most children in horror movies and books and such realizes how how much of a coward I am. Because there's no way I'd be hightailing it out of the house. Well, and like, you know, we're just coming up on like the point of the, like, when people are writing this, you know, when he's writing this like in the early 1900s, when people are starting to think of children as more than just like tiny adults as well. Right. But I feel like when you read some of them in these stories, you're really leaning into like the, you know, adult part of like little adult <laughs> yeah, you know when yeah. you think about you know how they think about children and what they can like kind of handle you know I mean when it's this was true, written in 1904 kids were working in mines when they were like six years old yeah that's so. you know what that's true Crazy. he yeah. could be in a mine what's worse <laughs> uh maybe this actually okay so <laughs> you be the judge you know, who's to say <laughs> so 11 o'clock he grabs a candle heads downstairs only to find the door locked and to hear Abney in his study speaking to someone. He hears Abney cry out and the cry suddenly cut off. Only then does the door give way and Stephen rushes in. And there the story ends. But there's two postscripts. The first postscript tells us that Stephen would later come to understand what was written on the papers that were found with Abney. Uh, Abney's notes describe this process by which the ancients were gifted with incredible plot powers, flight, invisibility, control over elemental forces by, quote, absorbing the personalities of a certain number of his fellow creatures. And that, quote, the best means of affecting the required absorption is to remove the heart from the living subject to reduce it to ashes, and to mingle them with about a pint of some red wine, preferably port. Ugh. <laughs> horrifying. It was genuinely horrifying. Yeah, that's a... That's, yeah, it's, did yeah. not like it. Um, <laughs> so his notes also indicate that the victims 
ghosts may return to bar- bother their murderer, but it like wasn't much of concern to him. He's a professional. He knows what he's doing. He can handle <laughs> it. As for Abney himself, the final postscript reveals that Mr. Abney was found in his chair, his head thrown back, his face stamped with an expression of rage, fright, and mortal pain. In his left side was a terrible lacerated wound, exposing the heart. There was no blood on his hands, and a long knife that lay on the table was perfectly clean. A savage wildcat might have inflicted the injuries. The window of the study was open, and it was the opinion of the coroner that Mr. Abney had met his death by the agency of some wild creature. But Stephen Elliott's study of the papers I have quoted led him to a very different conclusion. I wonder if you could find all this in the Medical Maladies Museum. (laughs) (laughs) Dreamers, I went to a Medical Oddities Museum last week, and we were talking about it a bit before the show. If you're ever in Philly, go check out the Mutter Museum as long as you are of a strong constitution. So, there you go. Lost Hearts, at least in the M.R. James story, refers very, very literally to people with their hearts cut out. (laughs) And if you want to read this story, the link is in the show notes, just so you know. John, that was great. Thanks so much for giving us that literal interpretation. I'm excited to hear more about the figurative interpretation in a little bit. Yeah. Ashley, you kind of did a very, very, very specific panel, almost deep dive for us this evening, uh, looking at what was on Rose's nightstand in the uh, epilogue part of the comic. Yeah, though... Just before I get into this, I'm going to have to take, if Xylenol were real, I'd have to take one after Sean's deep dive because I am stressed. That is going to be imprinted on my brain for a long time. So thank you for that. Um, so yeah, so in reading the rereading the comic, I noticed that in the panel, well after all of the you know, great drama and action has occurred. Um, and Rose is trying to recover in their new house in Seattle. You see on her nightstand, a couple, a stack of books. And of course, being curious, I wanted to look up the titles because they were titles that were unfamiliar to me. And so I had a great weekend of reading ahead of me once I did find them. And the two books that have readable titles are Empire of the Senseless, uh, by Kathy Acker, which was published in 1988, and then Sleeping in Flame by Jonathan Carroll. Uh, so Sleeping in Flame is a very, as you would you would expect nothing else, very bizarre fantasy novel that was published in 1988. It follows the narrator, whose name is Walker Easterling, who is a film actor and a screenwriter, he has some travels, ends up meeting uh, a woman named Maris York, who's a sculptress, and she makes model cities, and they end up going away together to Vienna. They commence a relationship, and he Walker starts to develop these powers or discovers these powers within him in which he can kind of predict or begin certain events, and it kind of goes through then his relationship with him trying to discover these powers. He later then meets a mystic teacher named Venasque, who then tries to teach him how to control his quote unquote talents. 
but then in realizing how powerful he is, Walker accidentally then kills his his mentor and then is reached out to by his real father, who he didn't know, uh, and finds out hilariously that his real father is uh, Rumpelstiltskin. Amazing. Um <laughs> And the reason that Rumpelstiltskin reaches out to him, and Walker doesn't know that this is Rumpelstiltskin. He doesn't know this man's name. He's just described as a little man with no genitals. Uh, so, so he, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, how that's a, Really a, a, a very cutting description. Like oh, somebody describes you as a little man with no genitals. That that hurts. Yeah. You know, we love a short king, but maybe not the second part. <laughs> but um but so uh he Rumpelstiltskin reaches out to him, because this is a plot point then, uh, because Walker has several um, incarnations, and Rumpelstiltskin has chased after these incarnations and killed them all, because allowing them to live uh, then repudiates the legend that Rumpelstiltskin cannot, um, cannot produce offspring. And then calls into question the rest of his power. So it's basically just like, look, you're, you're ruining my reputation. I can't have other me's. I can't have my, my young kind of taking over the world with these powers. So I need to kill you now. And of course, by the end of the tale, you know, spoiler alert, Walker does live, uh, because Walker then finds, uh, Rumpelstiltskin's true name. And if you know, the, the story of Rumpelstiltskin that has, has power as most folklore. If you have somebody's true name, um, that gains you control over that person, but it opens up this whole world of, uh, the Grimm brothers tales and Walker and Maris end up having a daughter um, or excuse me, having a son. And then after they've had this son, a little girl shows up on their doorstep and is like, you're dangerous. And they realize that the little girl that shows up on their doorstep is the original source for the little red riding hood uh, story. Mm. So it, it opens up this whole world of, of fantasy tales coming to life, fairy tales coming to life, and then also um, changing or questioning how those fables are interpreted, mm. uh, which I think kind of goes with the tone of this whole run uh, with Rose overall. You know, it's a very postmodern story. You're questioning the norms. You're questioning how things have been told and how we've interpreted them. And so that was one um, source of inspiration for this issue and for this run overall, but especially this issue. It's a very interesting tale of this modern retelling of Rumpelstiltskin, which is interesting considering Morpheus's behavior and how we've described Morpheus's behavior earlier. Um, for example, when Morpheus claims the child of Lyda, oh, um, sure, sure. you know, uh, yeah. when Morpheus describes that the vortex keeps occurring over and over and over again, and he has to kill it every single time. That definitely is like a direct correlation to sleeping in flame as Rumpelstiltskin has to chase down these reincarn or yeah, these reincarnations of his own offspring to make sure that they can't take over. Um, so it's a it's a really interesting novel. I suggest you read it if you can get a copy. But uh, 
Carol has a, the author has a reputation for using dreams or fictions um, and making them reality. And it's rumored that Neil Gaiman had to actually rework the plot of The Doll's House after reading this book um, from the original idea he had for it. So that's a little bit, but it also made me, when I was reading it, it made me, it reminded me a little bit of the, and I don't know if either of you had watched this, the ABC miniseries from like early 2000 called The Tenth Kingdom. It like went over like, I think maybe five episodes or so. It just, it depicts the adventures of a young woman in New York um, and her father. They're transported excuse me, transported into um, a mystical kingdom through a magic mirror um, that is a parallel world of fairy tales. She ends up, again, another spoiler, she ends up falling in love with the big bad wolf. <laughs> he proposes to, proposes to her with a singing ring. Scott Cohen played the wolf. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, like, it, it was in, imprinted in my brain. It was such a big formative memory for me. I remember the logo. I'm looking at it right now. Like I remember yeah. that kind of shining, you know, castle, tenth kingdom over a lake. I, I don't know what it I know had, that from. Yeah, it had actually won an award for like the opening title sequence. It's mm. interesting. But the thing that I remember most is this weird singing ring that he proposes to her with. And then they end up getting pregnant and she has a pup. It's the weirdest it's really <laughs> the truly the weirdest ABC miniseries. If I think you can find it on YouTube actually. And if you can watch it, it's so strange. But again, it's this taking of, you know, fairy tales and modernizing them in such a way or questioning norms based on that those fairy tales establish, which I think uh, this whole Doll's House series really does. Um, Maybe not directly, but it, it questions standards in a way that I think these kind of reflect. Uh, The other book, Empire of the Senseless, very strange. You have to have a pretty strong stomach to read this book. It was written, like I said, by Kathy Acker in 1988. Um, perhaps coincidentally, she dedicates this book to her tattooist. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's described as a postmodern novel and quote unquote, a not very pretty story. It is in fact, again, having read it, quite violent, quite graphic. Um, I mean, we've, we've seen Sandman and how graphic it can get. I would say Acker did not need pictures to be able to like make it more traumatizing. It is, it is stressful to read. Uh, it tells the tale of a cyborg named Abhor and her pirate lover, uh, Thivai, as they travel through a destroyed Paris. Uh, The reader then follows them on an odyssey of carnage and eroticism as they share very confusingly written stories about their family, their political origins, and Western consumerism. Uh, The author has called it, or did call it, she's she's now passed, um, but she called it an elegy for the world of our fathers, where the terrorists and the wretched of the earth are in command, marching down a road charted by Gannett and Maisei, composed by Saad. So... I don't know it's any like, of those three references. I'm, I'm well, reading it right and, now and again, on Goodreads she's like, as well. She has like strong <laughs> punk influences, okay. um, very postmodern writing. Mm. So a lot of it is not meant to necessarily, it's like not for the standard consumer. She was mm. like trying to break a lot of barriers. Interestingly enough, we've talked about breaking barriers in this, this run. Uh, Publishers Weekly referred to the book as an apocalyptic tale that makes a clockwork, clockwork orange look tame. And uh, yeah, can confirm. It's, it's a really stressful book to read, but 
It's Actually, I'm sold. I am in. Yeah, Sean. <laughs> 100%. I think, I think Sean's going to start a new podcast tomorrow doing a <laughs> deep dive of yeah, this. Yes, deep dive just this book. I truly, like, I, I read it, and I would have to, like, take breaks. I'd be like, oh, it's a good time for tea now, and I'd put it down, and I'd walk, and I would just, like, lean against the counter and go, huh, okay, what did I just read? It yeah. is. This is so cool. She writes fluidly, operating in the borderlands and junkyards of human existence. Her work yeah, is experimental, is right. playful, and provocative, engagingly alienating, narratively non sequitur. That all comes from Goodreads. Yep. Wow. Yeah, it's wow. intense. It's intense. And and just, you know, care warning to anybody, it does, there's um, strong descriptions of, like, rape and incest, so that's something to just be aware of mm. um, before you get into it. But um, it is this, like, just very sort of odd telling regarding um, these these characters and their, their backgrounds and then their travels. So just, if you're going to read it, take it with a grain of salt. Um, is it is it torturey? I don't like torturey stuff. Uh, you know? so that's what's confusing is there there is you can presume torture, but it's also written in such an odd way that you're like, okay, is this really happening? Is this character lying? Is this mm. a character at all? Like, does this person exist? It's it's really odd because it's in especially in the beginning, it's like, um. Tivi is like saying, this is a story that Abhor told me. And then it's written, but you can't tell if it's Tivi speaking or Abhor speaking. And then it flips and it's like, Abhor, um, Abhor's uh, lover Tivi or Tivi says this. And then it goes on and you're like, okay, is this Abhor saying this Tivi's story or is this Tivi telling their own story? So you just can't quite always get a foothold. And maybe it's just because I read it within a weekend and I should take more time with it. It's hard to, though. It's hard to quite get a foothold on what's going on. Because, Mm -hmm. again, Acker was trying so... I don't even think she was trying that hard. It was probably just how she writes, given a lot of her other work. Um, It probably came much more intuitively to her than it would to me really trying to break down the barriers of what is telling a narrative um, and what a novel is. So yeah, I read a a brief story about her teaching a writing class and someone was so desperate to get into her writing class that they lied about a dream they had and they wrote a short story about, oh, are you reading that right now, Ben? Yeah, yeah. And so later at the end of the class, like the the workshop, um, they went up to her and was like, by the way, I lied about that just to get into class. And she just stared at him and was like, okay, so I don't care. <laughs> and so, like, that's just her attitude. That was her attitude towards everything was just like, I don't really give a crap. Just write if you're going to write. But this is what I'm going to write. Yeah, I can barely understand most of the comments in this right. Goodreads description. These are real regular people just kind of, like, writing comments about her. And I'm like, yeah, I'm blown away. Yeah, I would, I would honestly, I would really probably benefit from a, a reading group if anybody else has read this book or wants to read this book. I would probably manage to be able to read it again with other people mm. just to be able to try to decipher some of the things going down. Because there's, it just feels like you're drinking from a sewage fire hose. It's mm. disgusting, but also <laughs> there's so much of it. And you're trying to process it all at once. And the reason I kind of wanted to highlight these two books especially is because I feel like it, it's, it's kind of like book ending where Rose 
is ending up mm. like just in her own mental state um, because she has experienced a severe trauma. She almost died. She almost killed people herself. Also, it was in the dream world. So was it real? Was it not? Um, th- another, you know, literary reference that comes up frequently, or I think twice actually in this issue is, uh, and then she woke up. So that's the conclusion to... Mm-hmm among many books, but Alice's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And then in the movie version of The Wizard of Oz, which is referenced in the issue prior to this. um, So we've seen direct references to each. And I would say that there are a lot of corollaries between Rose and Alice in a lot of ways, considering, you know, being sucked down black holes and and experiencing really odd phenomena and trying to figure out what's real, what's not. and again, because she's experienced such a, such a hefty trauma, you know, she's found family. She suddenly lost family. She's in the real world, you know, being truly actually abused and tortured and nearly killed. And then now she's going to be killed in the dream world. So what's real? So um, I do think it's, you know, as far as understanding Rose as a character, and, and and I really started to pay attention to her more, Sean, after you described her as being a passive character, because I just never gave her that much consideration previously, I think because of that. So I was like, okay, let's, let's dive into that. I feel like seeing her try to heal from and process what she's experienced are some of the most active steps we've seen her take, apart from being yep. the vortex itself. Yep. Um, and so then I, I looked a little bit into um, trauma recovery. And again, I just want to assert, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. This is just some research that I did on my own. So there's this sort of triangle of understanding trauma and how we we process it. It's called the cognitive triad of traumatic stress. And it's basically has you know, three points where it's the views about the self, the views about the world and the views about the future and then how trauma affects those things. It was proposed by Aaron Beck in 1967 and it's still used as um, a part of cognitive behavioral therapy. So the views about the self after experiencing trauma is I'm incompetent. I should have reacted differently. uh, It's too much for me to handle. I feel damaged. Those are some examples of phrases that one could use. Views about the world change to the world is a dangerous place. People cannot be trusted. Life is unpredictable. And then views of the future, things will never be the same, which I think we see. Uh, What is the point? I'll never get over this, which I think she demonstrates that she's been experiencing, having been holed up in her room. And then this is hopeless, Um, which I think previous Rose could have pretty easily given up given her sort of disposition and the fact that then she turns a corner um, is remarkable and also demonstrates the kind of hope that we see Morpheus uh, describe ages past when he was in hell Um, because I think we can all understand Rose feeling hopeless after everything she's experienced and trying to put all the pieces together and it can create this kind of um, this cyclone effect of each of these views, views about the self, views about the world, views about the future, sort of cycle in on one another, creating a psychological vortex of sorts because they feed into one another. And you'll hear people who have experienced trauma or depression talk about feeling like they're cycling, they're spiraling, they're having an intrusive thought that triggers them and kicks them off into a spiral of, of these negative thoughts and, and um, self-perceptions. And uh, I think, again, then based off of 
what Rose is reading, how we see her trying to put the pieces together, uh, that's certainly evident in the way that she's sort of presenting herself and then the choices she makes to bring herself out of it. And she has to go through almost a physical transformation, you know, the cutting of her hair, the dyeing mm -hmm. of her hair. People describe that that sort of impulse when they've gone through something, mm -hmm. having to physically change themselves to be able to mark uh, a decision to change the rest of their life. Um, and then going in and rejoining her family, which also happens to be a triad, which is interesting. And they've all gone through their own traumas as well. Yeah. Um, so I think that especially with those two books and the different stories that they're telling really does reflect Rose's mental state in this moment and the fact that then she's sort of explored all these different forms of storytelling and trauma and violence and um, selfhood. The fact that she bounces from that, I think, shows a, a pretty remarkable conclusion to her story arc. Well, and like we've talked about quite a few times, you know, they made a choice on what books you were able to read in that stack, right? I mean, they could have put any books. Right. They could have some of the books you can't read. So right. that, that almost makes it even more like, look I at know. the books we decided to put here, you know? Right. Well, and, and Neil Gaiman has uh, indicated that there were two others that were supposed to be visible, but then like just didn't make it into the panel. Mm. One of them was Shirley Jackins. We have always lived in the castle, which I haven't read. Yeah. And then Sean M.R. James's ghost stories of an ant of, of an antiquary. So um, mm. that was supposed to be like a clue to Zelda's story. And it just, they didn't make it into the panel for one of whatever reason. Um, so he was trying to throw us a few bones <laughs> and give some clues, but because those were intentional, that made me go back and look at the titles that are visible because clearly they were planned. Was the Acker one, or were they were they both like Neil Gaiman's suggestions? Did you did you happen to see that? Because I almost kind of wonder. I'm wondering if there are books on the table. They're gonna fill in titles. I feel like just knowing what I know about the creators that the Jonathan Carroll one, hundred percent Neil Gaiman, right? I think he mm -hmm. like. It was like an admirer of Jonathan Carroll, and I think he started a correspondence with him before he broke yeah. into fiction. I think it's something mm -hmm. like that. And then the Acker one just sounds so much like a Mikey D suggestion, doesn't right. it? Uh, it's yeah. just like, from what we know about him, it just 100% yeah, sounds yeah. like something he would be really into. Yeah, absolutely. So no, maybe I they're both Neil, but... Yeah, I, I mean, I know Sleeping in Flames was, and then the other two that I just mentioned were. I, as far as the um, the Empire of the Senseless, I, from what I remember reading, he had, and maybe I'm misremembering. I'll have to someone fact check me. But I believe Neil Neil read it and was mm. impacted by it. But as far as him suggesting it to be visible, that I can't remember. Um, but I do think that especially in having read it and seeing the sort of chaotic nature of the violence depicted in the comic, it feels like it's a pretty good comparison because Empire of the Senseless is exactly that. It's so senseless. It's so chaotic that it feels like some of the panels that we've seen that are just gratuitous violence where they're not meant to have any sort of like special meaning. It's just, it's violent and it's bad. And you're meant to respond to them as this is senseless and bad. Like nothing about this is like good or necessarily deep. You're not supposed to like, um, if you, if you relate to this at all, it's probably not a good sign. <laughs> so it wouldn't surprise me if there was, there was a stronger link there that I just didn't pick up on. 
Excellent. Well, thanks, Ashley, for that really wonderful exploration of just two books in one panel. Sean, we're coming back over to you. All right. We're doing more Lost Hearts. Yes. Let let us continue with a little more Mr. James, and we'll bring it up to the Sandman. But remember where we were with Mr. James. A figure rises in what should be an empty bed. A man puts his hand out in darkness, feeling for a shelf, and instead his fingers find a hairy open mouth. Uh-uh. <laughs> Stop, Sean. This is Mr. James stuff. Sean I is having and- a nice day. <laughs> Sean is literally squeezing a stress ball while he does this. That's, I need something to squeeze. What can I squeeze yes. right now? Yeah, I'm looking for something but, myself. But these are important Mr. James things because yes. as as um, Anthony Lane puts it in a New Yorker article that he wrote on Mr. James, the root of James's anxiety, what he fears most, is surface contact, and the surfaces what? that give yeah. And the surfaces that give off the most appalling charge are not steely or aggressively angular, but soft. And I think this tells us something about M.R. James. You know, Lane notes, uh, M.R. James wrote this 1891 letter in which he writes, I begin to think my time is approaching, but only in my wilder moments. And you think like he's talking about like death or something like that. He's not talking about death. He's talking about marriage. <laughs> the no. guy is just ter- yes. <laughs> and I think that's the, like there we have it really. Um, the true horror for James was what Lane calls the nightmare of the intimate grasp. You know, this was a this was a lifelong bachelor. This is a person who hung out like only dudes, you know, and these, the, a, a, a hand caressing you, a soft, uh, a shroud, uh, a, a mouth. These are disgusting to James, you know, this, this intimacy. And there we are. That brings us back to kind of what I've been talking about as we've explored this story. And, you know, any road we go down in this Sandman storyline kind of brings us back to it. And in this issue, you know, we finally find ourselves given over to it, overtaken by it, and honestly, saved by it. Um, Rose gives her heart away, right? Uh, figuratively, in one of those images that could really, like, only ever work in a comic book, with Rose reaching into her chest and pulling out this sparkling cartoon heart, right? Um, it's a brilliant moment, both because... You know, we've seen this whole time how scary it can be to give yourself over to someone else. Ashley went through it piece by piece. It's frightening, and there's lots of bad things that can happen to it. This whole storyline started with a very crappy relationship, and we've seen a number of those as we've gone through. We've seen, you know, one sibling try to destroy another. We've seen an uncle and aunt abuse a nephew. We've seen you know, strangers terrorize each other and things like that. It's scary to open yourself up to someone else. So this moment of Rose doing that actively, as you mentioned, Ashley, as I think, I think makes it extremely powerful. And then it's also just so great visually, you know, um, like 
so Scott McCloud in Understanding Comics, which I've brought up before, he's got this really wonderful uh, diagram that he considers to be this comprehensive map of the visual language of comics. And he says each icon in the comics medium can be mapped somewhere on here. Anything from like Charlie Brown's face to the um, like Wolverine's like snicked sound effect when he extends his claws. Uh, anywhere it can be mapped on this diagram. And it's this, it's this pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid is what he calls the picture plane. So that's like lines, shapes, colors, things that just are themselves. And they're not representative of anything else. Like a square is just a square. It's not representing another thing. Um, and at the bottom, so at the top of the pyramid, picture plane. At the bottom of the pyramid is representation. So, you know, the, the icons that, that, that uh, stand in for something else, that signify uh, another thing. Um, so at the left vertex, the left corner, is like a realistic photograph or a portrait. And at the right corner is abstraction where a totally non-realistic symbol stands in for something else. So you could think of like an emoji or at its furthest extreme, language itself, right? The letter C-A-T, a sign that, you know, refers to the four-legged creature, right? So one of my favorite things about this climactic moment is the way it brings together those two far points at the base of McLeod's pyramid. So you've got Mike Dringenberg's very realistic drawing style, right? And especially, you know, for the, the, the time in comics where we're kind of building, 1990, we're getting into the muscular, like exaggerated forms in, in a lot of comics publishing. You know, Mike Dringenberg has this very sort of understated, realistic style and then on the complete other end, you've got this like fantastic, like utterly abstracted heart, you know, and just wonderful kind of bringing those together. And then, of course, this image, no surprises here, doubles up with the one from the storyline's prologue, right? Where uh, Tales in the Sand, where the young man hands his grandfather a piece of heart-shaped glass in exchange for a story just as Rose hands one to her grandmother in exchange for her life. Beautiful. Yeah, just as the two sides of the Doll's House story come together, because remember there's been lots of like mirroring throughout the storyline, mm -hmm. we see here kind of Neil Gaiman's focus on storytelling and relationships come together. Those are sort of the twin poles around which this whole storyline revolves. It kind of reinforces... What I mentioned last week about how, you know, art for Neil Gaiman is this vehicle through which we can reach beyond our narrow and limited scope of understanding and encounter, you know, what and who exists outside of ourself. And then, of course, you know, you've got desire can who can never really understand that. Right. Uh, and that's their tragedy. Right. It's like desire doesn't look inward or outward. You know, their 
posed on the edge, pretty immobile, appropriately enough, at the threshold, right? That's mm. that's Desire's place. Right. Um, but it's a lonely place, right? Like, Desire is the only inhabitant of their realm. And for Rose, however, the title of Lost Hearts is ultimately ironic. Uh, you know, she's given her heart, but she certainly hasn't lost it. Um, and, you know, as you talked about, Ashley, after some time alone, kind of recovering and healing from this adventure, uh, when it seems that maybe she, like, really has been lost, she finally finishes telling her story to us, the reader, mm -hmm. right? And then she woke up. And then when we see her last, you know, she's walking through the woods with Jed out to find this fox's den and her cubs as you said, rebuilding her relationships and giving her heart away all over again. Wonderful. Very nicely done. Very nicely done. Well, I think we're all going to go look at Scott McCloud's big triangle. We'll come right back. Wow. Blown away at what you two brought this week. But we can't end without talking about our favorite panel and our favorite character. Lots to choose from, lots of beautiful things going on. Uh, I am actually going first this week. Very rare, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I am actually going to take the very first page, bottom right panel. I love the design of Morpheus here. I love one red eye, one glinting, shining eye. And him just responding with, yes, that is what I am saying. He has this look mm -hmm. of, we've seen him over 16 issues change, right? And that that's, that's the old, you can only be a protagonist if you change. You don't get to be the protagonist if you don't change, right? And we're seeing change here. And I don't think that the Morpheus that we see come out of the uh, glass enclosure, I don't think he cares. But 15 issues later, I think he does care. Because he has grown and mm. he has seen a lot more things. And I feel like this pain, this knowledge, it's almost like a knowledgeable pain that he has that he's trying to express here. Where he doesn't want to do this thing, but he has to do it. And like this is just his job. And this right. is a part of the thing that happens. But he he knows it, it means more. And I just think that, that that work done there by everyone to to capture that in, in one image is a really wonderful, um, uh, just a, a really wonderful use of the medium. That's going to be my pick. Page one, bottom right panel, Morpheus saying, yes, that is what I am saying. So you have a red eye in yours? Yes. One, the right eye is a very tiny red dot, and the left one is a glistening white eye. Okay, we got we got straight right, white eyes on, oh the, on the, the xylenol version. It makes look at that. a red eye. Look at that. Look how much of a difference that makes. Yeah. I'm so envious. That white, that little red dot there. So for those of you at home, but yeah. we just showed each other our images on the camera <laughs> like we do every week. And then we say, we're totally going to post these in Discord. And then we never do. But come to our Discord. Next season. He apologizes like three times throughout the issue. Mm -hmm. He's yeah. very bad about right. this. You know, and I think that, you know, is just one of those things where Character growth happens to the protagonist. He's our protagonist. So, yeah. Uh, Tales in the Sand, Morpheus not doing that. Absolutely not. 
Uh, Ashley, you are next for your favorite panel. All right, so my favorite panel comes just before Unity drops into the Dreaming, um, where Rose is urging Morpheus just to take her life however he's going to do it. And it, he's, like, cradling her face. Yeah. And it's, like, very gentle. And it made me think of the... It reminded me of the um, the Secret Hearts romance um, mm. comics covers. That's what it looked like to me. It looked like a, a Secret Hearts romance comic cover. Um, but then, like, you looking at the language that Rose is using, not romantic <laughs> at all. So I just love the juxtaposition of this very aggressive language coming from Rose with this very tender, tender scene. Um, yeah. Almost like like they had just had a, um, a little spat and that they're going to kiss and make up. No, he's going to kill you. Yeah, it's it's like there's so much emotion in those faces mm-hmm. that Mikey D is drawing. Like to me it looks like it it looks like a, it was modeled off after a painting, which seems mm. up Dringenberg's alley, but I don't know what painting it would be. It's sure. just that's how it strikes me looking at sure. it. But that's a really memorable panel there. Yeah. Well, I also also love how much of his cloak looks like he it's like swaddling her, like almost like he's like wrapping her up in the night. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's just like, <laughs> well, thank you, Ashley. Uh, Sean, what you got for us? All right. Well, mine is on uh, immediately on the page following Ashley's. It's the middle panel there. And it's after unity has arrived. And I just absolutely love how much is communicated in this panel. I love that there's a completely different experience going on for everyone there. Mm-hmm. For, you know, for Unity, she's like, oh, this is rad. What a wonderful place. And her arms are open and she's looking around at Fiddler's Green and just seeing all this, you know, this like paradise on earth, basically. And I love Rose's line there. So Unity says, what a wonderful place. And Rose says, yeah, it was a friend of mine. <laughs> and she's just kind of like... Like, she's just kind of, like, like feeling a plant just to be like, mm-hmm. Gilbert? Gilbert? <laughs> <laughs> and her shoulders are kind of hunched. And she's just kind of patting this plant there. And Morpheus, I, I love Morpheus' expression <laughs> standing there because he looks so just like, oh, come on. What now? I don't want to yeah. do this anyway. Let me just get it over with, right? And this is like the second time they've been interrupted by someone just showing up. And he seems so like bummed by it. Um, it's a great panel. If either of you had chosen that, my backup was going to be. Uh, I'll give it to you. I'll sneak. I'll give it to you. Yeah, season finale. You got to do it. Uh, uh-huh. My backup was going to be the one where Morpheus is looming over. Uh, desire on the second to last oh, page yeah. mm-hmm. and he's standing with his arms crossed in front of this big stereo and yeah. desire is just <laughs> sitting smiling like looking up at him mischievously i just love uh-huh. what's going on there and i love morpheus standing in front of speakers for some reason <laughs> well sean snake draft is always so who are you taking for your character this week well we didn't talk about him too much Although he's such a major part of the issue, I'm giving mine to Gilbert. Um, you know, 
we did not cover Gilbert too much in this episode, but if you want to hear more about G.K. Chesterton, about Fiddler's Green, I believe we went into more depth on that um, in the in the, the TV episode where he shows up. So mm-hmm. you listen to our episode, uh, I think it's episode seven. Uh, I talked a little bit about G.K. Chesterton there. But here, I mean, he's just so great. I think he embodies, like the sort of ideal approach to life in a Sandman comic, you know? Mm. He's he's brave, he's valiant, he's loyal, he's a little bit melancholy, and he appreciates his brief time on this earth, right? Where he says, you know, I left because I was curious and because I was tired. Life as a human contains substance I never dreamed of in the Dreaming Lord. The little victories and the tiny defeats. I had my reasons. You know, that's just such an mm-hmm. excellent summation of um, the, the you know, the novel appeal of life on Earth. And then to follow that up with him offering his life in exchange uh, for roses just speaks to what a, what a guy that Gilbert is. What a place that Gilbert is. <laughs> Yeah, I love when Rose says, yeah, it was a friend of mine <laughs> when yeah, he, yeah. he shows up. <laughs> All right, Ashley. All right. My my favorite character in this issue is another weird one. My favorite character in this issue is Rose's dream dress because uh, it doesn't <laughs> take a consistent shape in any single panel. <laughs> Definitely. And no. I really do think it's, re- again, reflective of her inner state um, where we have seen her be very passive and kind of just adapt to the situation, adapt to the personalities in the room and not have a consistent sort of character apart from that passivity. And so I love how she like first enters with a sort of like one shoulder uh, mm. dress to then it suddenly it's like a like a squared off neck neckline then it's like a t-shirt dress then it goes back to the one shoulder thing mm-hmm. um and uh and it keeps just m- like morphing and changing as the story goes on almost like she's constantly changing her mind about her own um her own opinion about whether she wants to live or die and i i just love how it contrasts then with unity's dress which is consistent the entire time she's there it doesn't mm-hmm. change once um so I just, I really like how that reflects their characters, but specifically the character of the dress, I think is uh, really interesting. It's neat. Thanks, Ashley. Always like when it's a different one. I like the rose dress. You know, when, when she just like throws herself down the ground when she thinks it's like a dream and she's mm-hmm. just like this really relaxed pose or kind of yeah. like, right. she's, it's a good you know, one. her hands up and her legs are spread and all that. And she's just, uh-huh. yeah, it's just a dream, whatever, you know, yeah, right. it's such a great image yeah no i agree it is it's just it's just an excellent dress so i'm gonna pick unity kincaid is gonna be my favorite character she you know i think at first when you look at it you might think like oh this is like deus machina not the thing that Mm. is super interesting in a comic but when you really read this it is set up the entire time and specifically thinking back to one of the things that Sean has mentioned really in the back half of this, um, this collection is the back half mirrors the front half. And when you look at it that way, you can see that it was set up the entire time for unity to be the dream vortex and to sacrifice herself for Rose. 
And I think this is where the, uh, that idea of using Deus Machina and, you know, giving it this like push over the edge to make it more interesting and to make it have like, oh, yes, we laid all the breadcrumbs out. They were all there the entire time and you could have seen them. I think it's a very clever writing and something that I really enjoyed. Agreed. Agreed. So that's it. Issue 16, Lost Hearts, ends our run of The Dollhouse. This week, Sean took us down a literal and figurative examination of Lost Hearts, focusing in particular on M.R. James and concluding with his fear of the nightmare of the intimate grasp. Ashley, notice that on Rose's nightstand, there are two books that we can read the titles of, Sleeping in Flame and Empire of the Senseless. And she used those to see what we can connect from those novels back into this issue, specifically focusing on some of the ideas that Beck pulled out in his negative triad or cognitive triad. Then Sean brought it all home by using Scott McCloud's big triangle to bring storytelling and relationships together and the ultimate lesson learned here of how we can look outside ourselves. I also want to say thank you to my lovely co-hosts this season, Ashley and Sean. I wasn't sure how this was going to go when I first pitched this to you both almost a year ago. It was 28 episodes exploring the comic and the TV show. We will be taking a bit of a break. But in the meantime, thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And as always, remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.